0: So the martyrdom of the early church, I've divided into two separate lessons. The first one addresses just martyrdom. Why why are people going around killing Christians? You know, what did the Christians ever do to them? And so we're going to talk about the whys of martyrdom. And then next week, I want to pull out two specific martyrs of the early church. Polycarp and Ignatius. I think those stories... Uh, I have trouble reading Polycarp without being moved to tears. It's an incredibly awesome story. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And when you hear the story of Polycarp, uh, I, I guarantee you it will inspire you and it will move you. Also, we'll be looking at Ignatius, who on his way to being martyred, Wrote a letter to seven letters to seven churches, and uh, it's it's fascinating for what it un, uh, uh, reveals and and discloses. That's next week. This week, though, just the concept of martyrdom. Now, <clears throat> there was a, a, a lawyer, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. There was a lawyer in the early church named Tertullian. Tertullian was born in the middle of the 100s. And at first he was a pretty uh, typical lawyer. Um, He um, uh, had great zeal for the law and for life. And he was raised in a pagan house. He went to Rome to study the law. He was interested in uh, chasing wild women and liquor and uh, uh had just quite the wild life until he converted to christianity and he did it in the middle of his life as an adult so it's really fascinating for me uh, both as a lawyer and as a, a christian to read the writings of tertullian because he examined things he examined things in very much a legal fashion this is still the fashion we use today. So here's one of the things that Tertullian said. He's famous for this quote more than anything else, perhaps. He said that the church has grown from the seeds of martyr's blood. What he was saying is one of the reasons the church grew so tremendously is because of the testimony of the martyrs. The way they face death. And it's, it's, it's a, a, an incredible testimony to the Lord. So, here's the reason I bring that up. What I want to do, my way my brain thinks, I'm a why kind of person. I'm convinced if I know why, I will typically do better than if I don't know why. I just, yeah, why? Well, because, Richard, funny you should ask. Um, if I know the whys, things just make sense to me. I can anchor them into my brain better. I can remember them better. I can process them better. If I'm not told why, I, I mean, I would not have been a very good soldier because I would have been told, you know, to charge that hill. And I might have turned around and said, Why? You know, I mean, it doesn't look like it's the risk-benefit. I'm not getting it. Um, I would not have been a good soldier because sometimes you just need to do. But in this class, we're not in the military and we can ask why. So that's the question I have for you. I, I, why on earth, in terms of martyrdom, in terms of martyrdom, why kill the Christians? Christians were pacifists. They weren't looking to take over the world. They weren't out there instigating trouble, by and large. So why? And here's a follow-up question that we may not ask as readily now because we see things through the lens of history. We know Tertullian said from the blood of martyrs is the seed for the church. But if we'd been living at the time, we might have been asking the question, Where is God in all of this? Where is God in the process of Christians being killed? I thought He was our protector, our rock, our refuge, our fortress. It seems the fortress has been breached. Well, I think we'll pick up on that question. I won't be answering it as directly as I will. Why kill Christians? And I've put a picture up in the PowerPoint of a prism. You know, when you shine light through a prism, you get the the rainbow in essence. And and I like that because the prism illustrates you can see things differently depending upon how you view them through a prism. The rainbow's already in the light before it goes into the prism. You just don't see it. So we can ask this question, why kill Christians? And we can answer it with a number of different perspectives depending upon how we see it. So martyrdom, we could say, what were the attitudes that caused people to kill the Christians? And I could have broken the lesson apart into attitudes. And we could talk about, for example, some people were just ignorant. There are some people who just didn't know what Christians were, what they believed. And if you're ignorant, you act out of superstition. And you act out of of, uh, a lack of knowledge. And that's a dangerous thing. A second attitude is superstitious. And you'll see that as we unfold this today. Some people were superstitious and they thought Christians were the problem with everything. They were blaming the Christians. A third attitude is some people were bloodthirsty. So their solution for Christians was to do bloodthirsty things because the, the, you know, it was a different culture in a different time. And, and, and there was a lot of bloodthirstiness in that culture. I mean, they, they had gladiator fights to the death for sport instead of the Super Bowl. I mean, people say well, football is a violent sport. Nah, not compared to gladiator death. I mean, football's, football's like a bunch of guys out there whacking on each other, but at least they got pads on. I mean, that, they play football to protect you so that you can enjoy the sport without getting hurt. Gladiators, they wanted them hurt. They want the blood gush. It's a different world. Then, Some people were scared and they were jealous. They were just these emotional responses. So we could look at it that way, but that's not what we're going to (laughs) do. Another way we could look at martyrdom and say, why kill Christians is to look at it through spiritual warfare. Just say, this is Satan and his henchmen waging war upon the body of Christ. That's a very legitimate way to look at it as well, because that's true. When we studied the book of Revelation, one thing we talked about last month was how Satan is waging war. And there's a limit to what he can wage, but but he's still out there doing it. So there's some of it as well. But that's not what we're going to do either. The way I've broken this lesson apart to answer the question, why kill the Christians, is as follows. I want to look at the source of the persecution, the source of the martyrdom. And so that's what we'll do. We've got some people coming in. There's some seats over here if you all want to make your way over there. Um, So let's look at the sources and we'll divide it up. There are three main sources I want to look at. I want to look at the Jewish persecution of the church. I want to look at local persecution that would spring up here or spring up there. And then I want to look at government-endorsed persecution. That of the Roman uh, uh, government as it came and and went in various times. So that's the focus. Those are the three points. Are you ready? When this is done, you're going to walk out of here. And if someone says to you, what are you studying at church? You're going to say, church history and today it was martyrs. They're going to say to you, why were people killing Christians? And you're going to say, funny you should ask. I'd like to tell you in three different points. Let's start with the Jewish point. One of the reasons that the Jews were killing Christians is because of bad theology. Jews were killing Christians because the Jews didn't understand God and theology right. I got two passages of scripture for you: Deuteronomy 21:23 and 1 Corinthians 2:13. We'll probably throw in a third passage just for grins. Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three, This is part of the Old Testament. That's the law of Moses. This is the law, the Torah, by which the Jews lived. Or were supposed to anyway. And here is what the law told the Jews. Chapter 21, verse 22. We'll start there. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. You'll bury him the same day because a hanged man is cursed by God. The Jews believed that if a man was going to be hung That man, by virtue of the fact that he was hung on a tree, was cursed by God. So cursed that they didn't want to leave the body up overnight. Because it would pollute the land by advertising God's curse. So the Jews in their bad theology thought Jesus could not be Messiah. Jesus could not be God. Jesus could not be Savior. Jesus was Cursed by God. If God had not cursed him, God never would have let him hang on a tree. Didn't the mockers say, Hey, where's your God? Let him send the angels and pull you down off the tree. If you're thinking cross, not tree, it's the same word. The cross was a tree. Sometimes it would have a crossbar on it. Typically with the Romans, it would, but it didn't always have to. So Jesus is hanging on a tree and God doesn't rescue him, he dies there. And so the people, the bad theologians think Jesus is cursed by God. So Jesus must be cursed, must be bad. And those who follow him are following a corrupt religion. And the Jews believe and know that following corrupt religion, failure to follow Torah, failure to follow the law, is what got them sent into captivity. It's what caused the the, the disbursement of the northern tribes. So they're sitting there, people like Paul, who are pious believers, are sitting there thinking, hey, nah, that Jesus guy, he hang on a tree, he can't be Christ can't be Messiah. He's cursed. And the last thing in the world we need to do is let the Jewish religion start turning to Him as a Messiah because then God's really going to punish us. He's going to say, didn't you read Deuteronomy 21-23? And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he's writing the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1-23. Paul says, we preach... Christ crucified hanging on a tree. And Jesus hanging on a tree is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolish to the Gentiles. Gentiles are just like, what? But to the Jews it's a stumbling block. No. Jesus on a tree can't be Messiah. Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three says. Now that's bad theology. And Paul, who bought into the theology at first, became a Christian when he was confronted with Jesus. And Paul explained why it's bad theology. Paul says to the Galatian church, look at his explanation there in Galatians 3. Christ, 3.13, redeemed us from the curse Of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul's quoting the Deuteronomy passage. And Paul says, yes, Jesus was cursed. That's how he is Messiah and Savior. Because all of us are cursed by the law. Anybody who tries to live good enough to satisfy God is cursed. Because no one lives good enough to satisfy God. Can't be done. Nobody's going to do it. So we're all cursed. But Jesus hung on a tree so he took the curse for us. So now Jesus on a tree as a curse with good theology, that doesn't mean... We're ignoring the law. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to trash the law. I came to fulfill it. But the Jews didn't understand that. They had bad theology. If we go back to, you know, y'all are already ahead of me. Good. They had bad theology. Second, the whole law of Moses thing was a big mix up for the Jews. Because the Jews really believed that their acceptance before God was based upon their performance. I got to tell you, most people today outside the church who believe that there is a God or who are willing to go there still think their acceptance before that God is based upon whether or not they are a good person. And there are a number of people in the church who think the same thing. And Paul and the apostolic church taught, no, not because you're a good person, but because Jesus became your curse and hung on a tree. If you are a good person, it's only God making you a good person. You can't take credit for it anyway. So don't think that makes you adequate before God. So the Jews had trouble with this. They had bad theology. And as a result, they saw Christianity as a sect. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But they saw it as a sect, a group. You had your scribes, you had your Pharisees, you had your Essenes, you had your Zealots, you had your Christians. And they were just another group in the early church time. And there were a number of Jews who thought that Christianity was seducing the people away from the people's covenant obligations with God and saw it expedient to persecute and extinguish the church. All right. Second, the Jews also persecuted out of jealousy, out of envy, out of bitterness. A feeling of inadequacy, mad, anger. Now I know none of us ever get jealous. I gotta tell you I do. You know, in my professional life, I love to win cases. And I'd like to tell you that I have such an overwhelming love for the justice system that when my competitive lawyers win cases, I applaud it. I try real hard to, but there's this little part of me that has to go, I can't believe he won that case. <laughs> and it's just one of these little fight things I've got going on within myself. jealousy takes on different forms. I googled Google images for jealousy and almost all of them would have a boy and a girl with either another boy or another girl looking on like, "Ah, I wish that was me. That was the most common image, it seems. Jealousy in relationships, jealousy in work, jealousy in money, jealousy in talents, jealousy in success, in the world's eyes it's something that's very real to the human condition it's something i, I in the interest of time we'll just throw the scriptures up there acts 5:17 the church is just bringing in thousands truly thousands of believers and the power structure within jerusalem and the jerusalem jewish power structure temple structure gets jealous and so the Acts 5.17 passage is this, the priest telling Peter and, and, and others, don't preach in his name, and they're doing it out of jealousy, the text says. And I put the Luke passage up there because the, the, the same power structure was jealous over all the followers of Jesus, as we read in Luke 22.2. So there's this jealousy also that can be a mean and powerful drive to wicked behavior. We don't generally want to acknowledge it. Was it Pascal who said the heart is deceitful above all things? Anyway, why else? The Jews were also doing it because of what I'm calling religion and politics and where they intersected. Judaism had built up this temple structure. There's a temple in Jerusalem. Jews are supposed to come from all over to the temple, buy sacrifices, put the sacrifices on the, the temple, do it on a regular basis, pay the priests, pay the temple costs. You got money changers and bankers there who are going to do the trading because the temple only wants to deal on a certain kind of silver. You've got all the, 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 the folks who are, are the, the, Sheep herders and traders and the people selling the doves and the pigeons and all of the different animals that have to be sacrificed. There's a massive economic system. The priests make all of the calls. They've got their own political system, never mind the fact that they're fighting each other over it, like every other political system, trying to buy off who gets to be high priest and who doesn't. But this whole political system of the temple... As the center of Judaism is being radically destructed by the Christians. Oh, yes, they would go there, but they would go there to pray, not to sacrifice. Jesus has done the sacrifice. Jesus calls the temple house of prayer. So you go back and you look at these John passages that I put up John 4 21, 14, uh, 21 through 24. John uh, 2, 13 through 16. Acts 24, 1 through 9. The John passages were written after the temple had been destroyed by Rome in the Jewish rebellion. So John's writing with a full cognizant of what happened eventually to the temple system. And it gives you a good frame of reference for why the Christians saw the temple the way that they did. And so, for example... John 4, 21 through 24. We'll choose that one. This is Jesus saying the following. 21. We can get it there. Jesus says to the woman. This is the woman of Samaria. He's met her at the, the, the well, the Samaritan woman. Jesus said to the woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, as Mount Gerizim, where she was, nor in Jerusalem, Will you worship the Father? There's time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's who the Father's seeking. Jesus says it before the temple falls. John writes it after the temple fell. Boy, John knew then how right Jesus was because worship was not everybody come to Jerusalem to do it. Worship was in spirit and in truth because God's everywhere and he meets his people through the blood of Jesus which is over all people. So anyway, all of this is such that basically this Christianity is threatening the entire fabric and structure of the Jewish system. Reasons to persecute Christians. Let's go to number two. Local persecution. Now there were pockets of persecution that we know that cropped up in different places. You had local persecution for example in Acts 19 over economics. This is because so many people had become Christians in Ephesus that the temple, the pagan temple was suffering. They weren't collecting as much uh what do you call it Kevin Roberts do ray me They weren't collecting as much uh, money. The attendance at the pagan temples was noticeably down. Because people were worshipping Jesus Christ. Son of God. And so you have some local persecution that can arise because of economics. We know that biblically from Acts 19. We know it from outside the Bible, from other sources as well. It's a problem that would snowball over the next century or two. Some might even say it was one of the driving forces for Constantine to deliver the Roman Empire into An official Christian empire. But we'll talk about that, God willing, later. Another reason for local persecution. Floods. Earthquakes. Famine. Kill the Christians. They're not worshiping in the pagan temples the gods who control such things. It's got to be their fault. The Nile River didn't get high enough to flood for the crops. And are we supposed to think it's a coincidence that the Christians are hanging out in Egypt? So-and-so river, the Orantes River, floods Antioch. Do we think it's a mere coincidence the Christians are in Antioch? Now, you may be saying, are you making that up? No. Let's go back to my lawyer buddy, Tertullian. Tertullian the lawyer. Here's what he says. He says, they consider that the Christians are the cause of every public calamity and every misfortune of the people. If the Tiber rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the weather will not change, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a plague, straightway the cry is heard, toss a Christian to the lions. Must be their fault. this, This was the superstitiousness and the ignorance Of the people. Blame the Christians. Feed the Christians to the lion. And then see if things don't get better. If they do. We were right. If they don't. Throw another Christian. We didn't throw enough. Local persecution because of ignorance. Um, Now you might be saying. Isn't that what we just looked at? Well, yes and no. I put that under superstition. Let me tell you, ignorance. Everybody in here, if you've never been to a church before and this is your first time, I'm still willing to bet you know a couple of things about Christianity. You know, I hope, that we consider ourselves a family. Sandy Shiver, is my sister. Lorraine Hibbert is my sister. Castel Hibbert is my brother. This is my family. You might also know that we do partake of what we call the Lord's Supper. Also call it communion. We commune with God. Also call it the Eucharist. And it consists of Fruit of the vine and unleavened bread. And we believe that the fruit of the vine is the blood of Christ and the unleavened bread, the body of Christ. Most of us in here are Protestants. So we're not going to be transubstantiationists who think that it literally becomes or even in a... Well, we'll talk about all of that later. Let's just say right now, we understand it to signify the body and blood of Christ. Now, if you go back to the first century, people didn't watch church on TV. They didn't have familiarity with church. Communion was a closed communion. We looked at the Didache last week and it talked about that. Only believers in for communion, nobody else. And communion was generally, with early part of the early church, part of a love feast, an agape feast, which was a meal that the members would have together. So now you've got outsiders. And here's what they hear. Man, these people, they get together in these secret meetings. They're eating bodies. They're drinking blood. And the whole thing's so incestuous. It's brother this. They're all brothers and sisters. Then you read Romans. Paul says in Romans 16 to greet each other with a holy kiss. Brothers and sisters are kissing. This whole thing's just incest and cannibalism. And they really thought that was going on. Incest, cannibalism. Minucius Felix, second century. Now I know what you're saying. That guy looks just like Tertullian. You know why? We don't have a picture of either one. And I thought that picture looked good for both of them. We hardly have anything Manuquius Felix even wrote. But we have some of his Octavius. And he's got a a back and forth, a a, a dialogue between a pagan and a Christian. And Manuquius Felix is the moderator in the dialogue. We think it's probably in the mid-100s, 150 or so. But it might be a little later than that but somewhere in this time frame. They know one another by secret marks and insignia. And they love one another almost before they know one another. Everywhere there's a mingled among them a certain religion of the lust. They call one another promiscuously brothers and sisters. I'm told that because of i know not what foolish belief they consecrate and worship the head of a donkey the meanest of all animals now in this monologue the 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 pagan who's pronouncing these judgments upon christians some of it we can trace and say oh yeah well you can see why they thought it was promiscuous brother and sister and yes we love each other almost before we know each other. If you're a child of Christ, you know you, I, we, we're going to love you till before we know you, because that's what family is. Just my family I hadn't met yet. The, some of this, we've got no clue where it comes from. There was some rumored idea that Christians were worshiping the head of a donkey, and nobody really knows where that came from, but it was out there. Um, there is, a, 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 in a museum, at the Kirchner Museum in Rome, you can actually see an etching. Now, it's really hard to make out here, but I'm putting the, the PowerPoint uh, uh, in the center screen. That is the head of the donkey, and the donkey is on the body of a man hanging on a cross. And here's a fella down looking up at the donkey. I've taken a tracing of it to try and help you see it better. So here's the etching that was just a graffiti that was found on a building in slave quarters. So this is, is lower class uh, in Roman times, uh, the, the poorer, actually making fun and mocking Christianity. This says, Alex, uh, Alexaminos worships his God. By the way, the spelling's really bad and the grammar's really bad. But this idea that Christians worship a donkey on a cross is some derogatory way probably that people started looking at Christianity and it caught on as a superstition. By the way, at some point it would not hurt for you to say, man, with all of these rumors, how on earth did that group ever grow and why didn't Christianity just get stomped out? Because of the Lord. So anyway. I mean this is is what was there. There was this ignorance about Christians. People didn't even understand who they were. And we tend to be scared. Of what we are ignorant of. And we can work up lots of fears. Third area. Government sponsored persecution. Now. Now. At first, Christianity was viewed as what would be considered a a, a legitimate religion. Going back to the time of Julius Caesar, there is a written record of the Jewish faith being given acceptance by the Roman government. So um, uh, Julius Caesar, evidently some Jewish people had financed a lot of his military campaigns. So in appreciation, Caesar recognizes Judaism. It gets, uh, Judaism is reaffirmed under a later Caesar as an acceptable religion in the Roman Empire. Paul gets called to trial and one, in Corinth and one of Paul's arguments is, is, hey, I'm a Jew, I'm a Christian Jew. Jesus was Jewish. And the answer of the the trial judge is, yeah, 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 that's a legit religion. And so for the longest time, that was the case. But Nero starts to sense things a little different. Nero is the emperor in the early 60s. Nero is the emperor under which Paul and Peter were martyred. Nero had it out for Christians. Now Nero was this horrible emperor. Um, uh, We'll throw a picture of him up there. And this is an actual sculpture of Nero. I think his nose chipped off. I don't think it looked like that. Nero was um, a, a horrible emperor. Everybody hated him by and large, including his family, who he was killing routinely anyway. He had, you know, you've heard the expression, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, he didn't really fiddle. They didn't have fiddles back then. Though he was fond of theater and music. But Nero had this massive building project he wanted to do. Comes the Roman Forum and all the rest of this stuff. and, and, And he wanted a new palace. And he had this great building project. The problem is there were all these homes in the way then mysteriously a fire breaks out and all of those homes in the way of Nero's building project get burned up along with a good bit of Rome. And of course, all of the people start saying, you know, Nero comes out, oh, I'm really sorry all of Rome got burned up, but gee, this is great. Can you all clear away all this rubble? I want to start building tomorrow. And the rumor mill starts going, you know he started the fire. This is that idiot we have as an emperor. And he just wants his new palace, and he wants it here, and he needed that room for the driveway. And so he starts the fire, it burns out of control, nearly destroys Rome. He's an idiot. And you get that, and it goes over and over and over. And so Nero needs to get the blame off of himself. So here's what Nero does. I'm going to read to you and let you read with me from Tacitus. Tacitus, we put it up here. Tacitus is, uh, uh, he was trained as a lawyer, but he's writing Roman history. Now, Tacitus would have been about 10 years old when Rome burned down. So he's born around 55 AD. Rome, Rome burns down in 64 AD, I believe. So here, let's get this in a little bit more readable form. Here is what Tacitus says in his Annals, Book 15, Chapter 44. Those Roman numerals 44, if I can remember my Roman numerals. Okay. So far, the precautions taken were suggested by human prudence. Now, means were sought for appeasing deity. Application was made to the Sibylline books. Here's what they're saying trying to figure out were the gods mad at us that they let Rome burn? So they start checking the oracles, they start checking the books, they're trying to figure out is this mad? Is God mad? And, and then none of this works. Man, they try everything. They, 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 uh, 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 take water from the temple with the image of the goddess. They have ritual banquets. They have all night vigils celebrated by women in the married state. But neither human help nor imperial munificence nor all the modes of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place By order. They tried to stop the rumors. They tried to say, oh, it must be the gods and placate the gods. Or, oh, it must be, you know, something government other than Nero. And so they try that. Or, oh, we need, is there a human? But they can't stop the rumors, try as they might. So, therefore, to scotch the rumor, to put a stop to it, Nero substituted his culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices. Yeah, they're cannibals and uh, incest mongers. Whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius, by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more. And Jesus is put to death on the cross, and it checks the superstition. But he resurrects from the dead, and it breaks out again Not merely in Judea, the home of the disease. But in the capital itself where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. Now I want to pause for just a moment. Because there are some people who think Christianity is made up. Who think it's an invention of people in the church in the 300s and the 400s. And I've said no, there's a chain and we're going to follow the chain. The guy writing this is no friend of the church. He thinks that we're all sorts of vices, a most despicable people. He thinks that we are um, uh, uh, loathed. And yet he is reciting the fundamental history of the Christian faith. And this is a man who's born ten years before the fire. Ten years before Paul dies. With the best training in Rome. And he's got a good idea of what's going on. Do we realize. This is just. He's born 22 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He says. First then. The confessed members of the sect. Were arrested. Arrest the Christians. Next. On their own disclosures, vast numbers were convicted. And not so much on account of arson as for hatred of the human race. Derision accompanied therein. They were covered with wild beast skins. They were torn to death by dogs. Or they were fastened on crosses. And when daylight failed... In other words, nighttime came, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, that's his track, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer or mounted on his car, that's his chariot. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, Christians being guilty of these vices, cannibalism and the whatnot, there arose a sentiment of pity, due to the impression they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. Um Why kill Christians? Nero and Rome's fire. Uh, Nero dies. Domitian uh, is tomb removed, becomes emperor in 81 to 96 AD. The emperor likely at the time Revelation was written. And uh, uh, an emperor also of persecution. There is some debate among the scholastic community as to how extensive. Um, but the Christian evidences are that the, the persecution at times was pretty severe. So we've got that as well. Then I want to talk to you about some more persecution under the, the, the time of Trajan. Trajan's an emperor after Domitian. Trajan's an emperor in the early 100s. Trajan, T-R-A-J-A-N, Trajan. Now, Trajan is an emperor at a time when Pliny the Younger is living. Pliny the Younger was born around 61. His last writings are 112. We don't know when he died, but it was probably after he wrote his last writing. So scholars say, we'll give it 113, give or take. The C in these dates comes from the Latin circa. We say it circa. It means about. Okay? So he died maybe about 113. We don't really know. But Pliny the Younger, he was the adopted son of Pliny the Elder, who was by blood his uncle, but adopted him on his deathbed. His father also wrote, I mean, yeah, his adopted father also wrote, but died rescuing people from Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii. Trivia. So anyway, the son becomes, after all of his marvelous training in Rome becomes a a custodian of sorts over Roman territories. And whenever he had problems, he would write to the emperor. And he would say, I've got an issue. What do I do? And we've got a number of his letters today. So let's look at one letter he wrote, and let's look at the reply of the emperor. And this is before 113 AD. Pliny to the emperor Trajan. Sir, it is my custom to refer all my difficulties to you because no one's better able to resolve my doubts and inform my ignorance. In other words, I don't know what to do. Help me. I've never been present at an examination of Christians. Consequently, I don't know the nature or the extent of the punishments usually meted out to them. Nor do I know the grounds for starting an investigation and how far it should be pressed. Nor am I at all sure whether any distinction should be made between them on the grounds of age. Or if young people and adults ought to be treated alike. Whether a pardon ought to be granted to anyone retracting his beliefs. Or if he has once professed Christianity, he shall gain nothing by renouncing it. In other words, can you say, uh, I want to do-over. I'm not a Christian after all. Whether it is the mere name of Christian which is punishable, even if innocent of crime. Or whether the crimes associated with the name should be punished. For the moment, this is the line I've taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I've asked them in person if they're Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away, For execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I'm convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. There have been others similarly fanatical who are Roman citizens. I've entered them on the list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. Remember we know from the Bible? Paul... ...had the right to appeal to Caesar... ...because he was a Roman citizen. Same with these Christians... ...who were Roman citizens. They have a right to appeal to Caesar... ...so they just get sent to Rome for trial. Pliny doesn't have to worry about them. But Pliny's trying to figure out... ...what to do with the rest. He continues... ...now that I've begun to deal with this problem... ...as so often happens... ...the charges are becoming more widespread... ...and increasing in variety... An anonymous pamphlet's been circulated which contains the names of a number of accused persons. Hey, you want to get rid of someone who's got the job you want? Just circulate an anonymous pamphlet calling them a Christian. That's what was happening. Among these, I consider that I should dismiss any who denied that they were or ever had been Christians. So if they come in and say, uh, no they'd let him go or when they'd repeated after me a formula praying to the pagan gods made offerings and incense to your statue because caesar was a deity as well which i ordered to be brought into the court for this purpose along with the images of the gods and furthermore had reviled the name of christ they have to revile the name of christ None of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. Genuine Christian won't sacrifice to another god, won't bow to the deity of Caesar, and won't revile the name of Christ. Others whose names were given to me by an informer first admitted the charge and then denied it. They said they ceased to be Christian two or more years previously, some of them even 20 years ago. They all did reverence to your statute, the images of the gods in the same way as the others, and they reviled the name of Christ. They also declared the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. All right. so here is what those who recanted the Christian faith said was the horrible things that Christians were really doing. You ready? They met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. They bound themselves by oath not for any criminal purpose. They bound themselves by oath to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, to commit no breach of trust, and not to deny a deposit when called upon to restore it. If someone loans them money, they pay it back. After this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble later to take food of an ordinary harmless kind, not human flesh. But they had in fact given up this practice since my edict issued on your instructions which banned all political societies." Secret societies is what it actually reads. This made me decide it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. I've therefore postponed any further examination and hastened to consult you. And it goes on. Though we're running out of time. So this is national persecution. But the Christians aren't doing anything wrong. It's just viewed at this point an illegal religion that's not worshipping the pagan gods and Caesar. More on that next week when we look at the two martyrs. But this week now, fruit for home. First, from 2 Timothy 3.12 is a passage Paul wrote, I believe, right before his uh, uh, martyrdom. Not as in the day before, but as in, in the period where he saw his martyrdom was at hand. And he wrote to Timothy and he said, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. Our goal in life is not to avoid the persecution." Now, don't get me wrong, I've never had my life threatened because of my faith. Thank you, Lord, we live in a country where that does not happen. It would in North Korea, it would in places in the Middle East, it would in Red China at times, but not here. But that doesn't mean there's not persecution. So here's where I'm at on this. I want to try and make sure that service to my God trumps me seeking the easy life. I don't want my life to be one where my goal is to make it easy street. I want my life to be one where I'm serving the Lord. In whatever form, shape that takes, that needs to be my my goal. Point for home number two. Fruit for home number two. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. So I was debating an atheist one time and the atheist said he had been a youth minister and active in his church for 20 years with his family but he left the faith because he decided Christians lived no differently than everyone else in the world. And if Jesus is real, he would have made a difference. And I wanted to say to him like Pastor Avery said today, not a champion forest. You come meet my brothers and sisters. Jesus makes a difference in our lives. There are things that that I've learned not to do because I believe in Jesus. And I trust Him to teach me to do the right things. That doesn't mean we don't fall down. It doesn't mean we don't sin. But it means when we do, we're not happy with it. We repent. We try to make things right. We live very differently, I hope. I sure want to live obviously different. And last point for home. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another... That love, ironically, was being used against the church, but in the long run, it brought home the church to the blessings of God. I went five, three minutes over, and I apologize for that, but I thank you for your rapt attention. Let me pray over you, and then... Don't forget, we've got to be memorizing 1 John 1, 1 through 8 now, okay? We've got it on the lesson. You can take it home, English Standard Version. There are only 10 verses in the first chapter. We're going to get those down at the time when we need it because it's going to be relevant to the lesson on Gnosticism. So work on it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask your blessings on my friends, on my brothers and sisters here, and on any ears that don't know you, Lord. I pray that they will that their ears will start itching with a desire to hear more about you. That our lives will show them that we don't live in fear. We don't live in worry. We don't live lonely. We live in fellowship and confidence of a life secured by the blood of Jesus, our Lord whom we worship and adore. And in whom we pray, amen.